We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Hey, guess what? I've got a book coming out. How exciting is that? It's called School X, and it's all about helping you as a principal be a designer of your school and not just a manager. So I hope you'll check it out. You can download the free chapter at schoolx.me. So just go to schoolx.me to download the first free chapter. And once you get it, hit reply to the email and tell me what you think. Looking forward to sharing that with you. That's schoolx.me. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash principle. I am excited to be a media partner for the Conrad Challenge. The Conrad Challenge is this amazing educational experience that allows students to create real-world applications to solve problems that we are facing today. It's amazing. Check out more at conradchallenge.org. That's conradchallenge.org. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am really excited to have on the podcast today, Crystal Shu and Porvi Patel. Welcome to Transformative Principle. And you work for Education Elements, which I've had many people from Education Elements on the podcast previously. And it's because the philosophy at Education Elements just aligns so well with the things that I'm trying to do. It's been it's been such a great relationship to have with you all. And so, Porvi, would you tell us a little bit about your background? It doesn't have to be the whole life story, but what got you to where you're at now working with that elements? 
Yeah. So I would say it, it, it started my passion for working with human rights issues started in high school and then college. And then I uh, landed on all the inequities within education towards the end of college and decided that teaching was my passion. And so I was in the classroom for some time and um, then noticed that I needed to enact more change and felt that I needed to um, be in a place where I could have more influence. And so I went on to work at the district level where I did a lot of redesigning teacher professional development and also school level redesign. So thinking about how they could use a community-centered design process to rethink uh, a challenge at their school. From there, I, I thought about that locus of control and influence a little bit more and decided I wanted to be able to influence and work with even more districts. And so Ed Elements has given me this opportunity where I work with districts across the country on oh, a lot of things ranging, ranging from, you know, equitable blended learning implementation to strategic planning to uh, how to use the design cycle in a really innovative way. So I just love this opportunity that I get to work with such a variety of folks. Yeah. So Crystal, I want to talk about your background. You know, we don't need the whole version, but just the highlights of, of what brought you to the work you're doing today, specifically with education elements, and what are you focusing on? Yeah, I love the question. So I always say that I'm a, I'm a teacher at heart. I started my career as a middle school science teacher and sort of have taught everything under the sun from middle school science to high school calculus to high school biology and spent most of the time in Houston, Texas, right? So in the Northeast side of Houston and the Southeast side of Houston, and then proceeded to be a, a coach, a dean, right? Uh, a school leader, um, and opened a high school in Northeast Houston that started with one grade at a time and eventually had a full-fledged urban high school. And then spent some time as a district leader working on the teacher pipeline. And so I always say that my passion and my work in education is around the how systems work together to put great quality teaching in front of students at any level. And whether that is through instructional coaching, whether that's through great school systems, whether it's through district support of pipelines, my background is sort of a little bit all over the place. Which is uh, something that usually makes people great is having lots of different experiences. So I want to talk about this recent manifesto document, whatever you want to call it, that you wrote for education elements. It was part of this like going back to school during COVID situation. And your focus on it is about steps to re redesigning school level systems for equity. So let's talk a little bit about that first. And I... Because my audience is mostly principals and district level people, I want to make sure that we focus down to that individual person. You talk about locus of control and how does one single person in a single building in a district that may be gigantic or tiny, how do they redesign with equity when they may not be part of any decisions that are happening in the district? They just may be told, here's how we're doing things. How would you approach that? Yeah, I love it. I, I don't know how I feel about it being called a manifesto, but no, it is definitely a piece of that's been an evolution. So it's actually started with our redesign work. So we work with some districts in North Carolina about helping schools open new schools and redesign systems. Um, and I think from our work in that area and that sphere, it's realizing that for leaders, we actually hold more agency and more control than we often maybe believe that we have, right? And so as like a own school leader, I was remember being like feeling I'm complacent about policies that are put in front of me and be like, oh, I have to do this, right? Or this is something that I have to enact. But in reality, for, for the root of this paper is just challenging each person, whether it's a school leader, whether it's a district leader to expand one's own self-consciousness 
around the competence we hold and changing the structures that we have, right? And so instead of saying, here's what I don't have control over, um, it's really thinking about like, what do you have control over? Yes, you're waiting for district policy. Yes, you have district policy, but the way in which you uphold those actually sits within leaders most of the time, right? And so the example I thought I inspired me to actually start the paper was around what we define as engagement. Um, in a school. What does it mean to actually say a student is engaged? How do we anchor great instruction around the term engagement? And how much of that is coming from our own biases, our own understanding, or even the lack of understanding of root issues and root privilege? Yeah, and, and that's really interesting. So as a, a school principal myself, I saw great inequities in how students of color, for example, were suspended much more than others and how they were blamed for things much more than others. And I, I worked really hard to, within my own locus of control, the things that I could handle, especially as it related to discipline and things like that, where I had principal discretion in, in making those decisions. I took full advantage of that to, to make sure that I was, I was acting in a way that was, was helpful. And, you know, I had a, a lot of critical feedback that I was letting kids get away with too much and that there was no discipline in my school because I wasn't suspending every black kid who made a loud noise in the hallway and the teacher thought there was a fight or something. And so I got a lot of criticism for that. How do we deal with the criticism that we face when we're trying to do these things? Yeah, I, uh, such a good question. And I think it takes me back. We were talking about it where I was probably at one point in my career, the person who was criticizing you, right? And then there's been a one point in my career where I'm on the other side, where I'm with you. I'm like, I don't need to suspend every kid for this power struggle that we have in, in within a classroom. And so I think if I were to think about my evolution of my understanding, it it really comes with the self-worth. There's a point in learning and in working through inequities within school that we just have to realize the role in which we Play in perpetuating systems and how our own experiences about what learning should look like, the power struggle within a classroom, and what does it mean to control students actually needs to be unpacked. And when you unpack that and you see it, then when you're leading through it, you could lead from a place of like heart and hand, right? Like a heart for just empathy and understanding of the teachers over where they are in their own journey, but also for kids, more importantly, and parents. And then your hand where it's like, okay, what what is that gray line that is constantly shifting? And what does it mean to bring others along? And I think I go back to something that one of our managing partners told me, and she's like, and it's really deeply rooted in your own self, like, self work and what you truly believe. Right. And then she's like, you're really good about making a decision when you know this is true to who you are and what you believe about the learning experience. But you don't need others to like 100 percent agree with you, but you could bring others along in this journey. And so I would say for leaders engaging in this work is like hearing the emotions, letting it sit and helping others be able to sort of like realize where they are in their journey of understanding. Well, and also with that, the idea of recognizing that they're in a different place than you are and that it's okay for them to, you know, be frustrated if that, if those things are happening. And what I appreciate about that comment there is that as I've learned and grown, I've been ready to move at a much faster pace as I've gone to a new school and the people at that school have not always been ready to move with me. And so, so it took me a while to figure out that 
just because I've had this journey doesn't mean that everybody else has themselves. And so in my last school in Fairbanks, what I really started doing was having a lot more conversations to help people understand where I was coming from. And I found that I didn't need to to push things as much as I felt like I did before because we were having the conversations. And so when somebody would say, well, why didn't you suspend that kid? Then I would say something like, why, why should I have suspended them? What, what would the outcome of that be? What do you think? And then we'd be able to have a conversation so that I could, you know, be trying to learn what their perspective was, but then also be able to share why I was doing the things that I was doing. And, you know, not everybody is interested in, in having those conversations. And some people, you know, they just, they just don't want to have that conversation. So I want to talk a little bit about this idea of privilege and how my perspective is that it's seen as as bad to have privilege or to have these opportunities. And I've I've never seen it that way. I've seen privilege as something that you live up to and that it's like a gift and a responsibility that I need to share with those that are around me. So if I have you know been given this great opportunity, I shouldn't debase myself so that I'm like others around me. I should try to lift everybody up to my level. How do we do that? And and is that a right way to look at it? Or is that a totally wrong way? And you can tell me whatever you want. I'm still going to believe what I believe, but we can have a conversation, right? No, I, I love this question. And I, and I think this is, this really came like apparent, became apparent in the last few weeks. And I, I actually agree with you in that it's not a good or a bad thing, right? It's not about the judgment we hold about whether we hold privilege and that's good or bad. I think it's, the understanding of when you hold privilege and recognizing that you hold it and be able to like pay it forward, move it forth and expose the opportunities as a result of your privilege. And so the story I can share personally is we are in the process of launching this equity seed fellowship for leaders looking to join a cohort of people of redesigning a system within their district. And before doing this, I never even realized the aspect of privilege in my career where I've been exposed to some fundamentally amazing fellowship learning experiences, right? Where people poured in thousands of dollars and provided me the time to be able to join this learning cohort. And and through this interview process, I realized some amazing leaders who've been in education 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, a variety of roles have not been afforded this opportunity of joining this fellowship. So we asked the question in it of like, you know, how many fellowships have you been a part of? And, and tell us a little bit more. And so many of the answers we're getting right now is I've actually never been a part of it. And that conversation made me realize the privilege I hold. Is it good or bad that I've been able to have these experiences? I mean, like, yes and no, right? But the fact that I've held these experiences, I didn't see it as privilege prior to this. It's helping me uncover something I hold and what I bring to the space of doing this work. And that I'm now thinking about how do we create more opportunities for leaders, whether it's leaders of color, whether it's leaders of rural areas, different type of leaders to have more exposure to fellowship learning experiences. And so I don't know. I don't disagree with you. I think it's just the the consciously aware versus the unconsciously aware that like I held prior and now that I hold in this space. So, Crystal, I really appreciate what you said about privilege there, because I am one of those people who's never experienced a fellowship, so I don't know what what that even really means in the context that you're talking about. So I don't, I don't have any idea of what that would look like. However, I do feel like I've been very privileged to be able to do this podcast and interview 
you know, this is episode 352. So I've interviewed hundreds of people about how to be a better leader. And I feel like the way that I that I best help others with that is that I share it. You know, originally my idea was I was not getting enough professional development for myself as a school leader. And so I, I wanted to go find more opportunities for me to learn. I think a fellowship probably would have been a good thing for me to join had I known what those were back then. (laughs) But now, you know, I did a, I decided to seek mentorship, ask the questions I needed help with. And then I thought, you know, I could keep this to myself or I could just record them and publish them as a podcast. And now almost seven years later and 350 episodes later, I've been able to learn in dog years, been able to learn a ton. And it's been really amazing. And so I I really like that approach of of seeing it as how do I use what I've had the opportunity to participate in and use that as a way to help others grow and develop and become better and have the same access to those opportunities. And so, you know, one thing I always tell people is you should start a podcast because then you get to have these awesome conversations and I can help you figure out all the details because it's not really, it's not as hard as some people feel like it is. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Porvi, do you have anything that you'd like to, to add to that conversation about privilege there? Yeah, not knowing what was said earlier, I'll just add that. I think you're right in that when when people have privilege, it's great to help lift up others without and like make room for those voices that are traditionally unheard or give opportunities to those who don't get those opportunities. I think where you're further along in your journey, where um, we push some others to go in our paper is around recognizing privilege. And so we dedicate a lot of a large chunk of the paper to start with yourself because there are many situations where people aren't aware of their own power and privilege and how they might be taking away from hearing other voices or taking into account other perspectives. And especially within the school setting, when we do see a lot of schools that are you know, where the leadership isn't reflective of the student population, it's important for those leaders to be able to recognize that privilege. And then when we get into seating power, that's where take their privilege and use it to make space to lift up those voices um, that are traditionally unheard. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the seating power piece because, you know, we've known for a long time in education that distributed leadership 
is an important thing that we shouldn't just, you know, the principal makes all the decisions. So how is seeding power different from distributed leadership? And what should we understand about that today? Yeah, I can start. And then Crystal, if you if you want to add on, but I think one key difference is uh, in distributed liter- leadership, yes, you are um, delegating your responsibilities, but seed power, it works a little bit different in that you have to take that first step of recognizing your own power and privilege. And then seeding your power could look like seeding it to those that you work with, but it's also about really engaging your stakeholders that are involved in whatever central challenge you're trying to tackle and making sure there's room for those voices at the margin. So it could also be like ceding a little bit of power to parents and making true spaces for them to be heard and listened to and feel um, safe being in those spaces. So a lot of times you know, there'll be a town hall and like, oh, I hosted this town hall, but the parents didn't come. It might be that you need to try a different approach and maybe go to spaces where they might feel comfortable. It could be like going to the local laundromat and hosting a open Q&A then to see uh, what they have to see. So it is about um, giving more ownership to others, but also again, about including all those voices and really connecting to what the central challenge is. I, I think about this, Jethro, and what Porvi is saying, and this is something that's been swimming in my head for a while, is like, can you truly distribute leadership without recognizing the power you need to see? Right? And the concept of like, uh, how I see it differently, and this is just like you said earlier, my opinion, believe it or not, um, is the idea of when I'm distributing my leadership, I myself are making decisions right, of what I'm distributing, and what space I'm going to take up, and and who I'm distributing it to, and at what point I'm doing that. And all of those decisions can come at with biases, with assumptions, with how I understand power and how who I see as like people I'm seating to. And so I see a seating power or the, the reflective process as, as you're leading through distributive leadership of like, are you truly recognizing the power you hold, the spaces you take, the ideas you hold, and how are you using those to distribute your leadership across multiple groups of people? And sometimes those people may be those marginalized who may not be viewed as the people you should see to. Something I've been sitting in my brain a lot around, like, what does it mean to distribute well? And what are the biases that hold us back from being true distributed leaders? Yeah, so that's that's given me some some pause to think about things. One of the areas that I feel we are really lacking, and this is not a a race-based issue, but I do think that it's an equity issue, is that the students that we serve that are in our schools do not have a voice in the vast majority of our schools. And when we try to give them a voice, we actually force them to join into our system rather than accepting what their ideas and desires are. So for example, um, I was in charge of the uh, the district-wide student government for a while. And that was purely that in charge of was not even, I wasn't even in charge of it. I was just there to make sure that they didn't, you know, make any really bad ideas or, <laughs> or something like that. And, um, and I remember having the assistant superintendent who was really the one who was in charge of it. And she was just delegating that to me. She said, you know, these, these kids, 
are coming up with these ideas and complaining that their voice isn't heard. But what they have to understand is that this is how their voice gets heard by serving on these school board committees, which if you've ever served on a school board committee, you know, that is also not a place for your voice to be heard. And, and she said, you've got to let them know if they want to be involved and have their voice heard, this is how they do it. And I didn't have the words at the time to say how wrong that was, (laughs) but but now, I mean, through this conversation, I definitely have those words now. It's a little too late. But but that idea of these these poor kids who thought they were getting involved in something where they could have a voice truly did not have a voice. Because if they didn't contribute in the exact way we told them to, which is not how they were comfortable doing it, you know, sitting in a room with 13 adults, two of whom are board members, two of whom are teachers, two of whom are principals and the assistant superintendent like, and a bunch of other community members, that's not a place for them to speak. That's not a place for them to feel comfortable. And I think this conversation has really opened my eyes to how that could be done in a better way. So I really appreciate your comments on that. So I don't know if I have a question to follow up on that, but I'm just, I'm still processing. So if you have any feedback on that, I'd love to hear it. I'm I'm laughing because Corby and I have had like so many hours of conversation of like, what does it mean to engage your stakeholders? And in your, and I think the example you gave us, we actually talked about, right? Like, it's, is it truly authentic engagement if you're only saying this is the one way in which you can like have your your voice heard, right? And how many times do we say like, oh, we're going to have a town hall where we're going to have a focus group and we put all the marginalized groups in one room and say, tell us what you want. And they're like, there, there might not be trust, right? Or like, this time of day or this venue is not where I want to give my my voice or my ideas or feeling judgment. And so I think I think what you're saying and, and what we've been working through is that like this process of seeding power is continuous. And the biggest part for us to like pause and think about is like right before we engage our stakeholders, right? Like that's a good point of like reflection of pause and be like, ooh, how am I asking to engage? What am I asking to engage on? And what part of that am I actually just like perpetuating a system that is not meeting the needs of the voices that we want to hear? Yeah, and I think I would add to that, that if you are just going for, you know, this is the way we're going to get feedback and that's it, not only are you going to miss a slice of the population in general, but you're also going to miss this huge slice of ideas and different ways of doing things. And in this coronavirus situation, I feel like that is what has really been missing is that we really in this situation should be turning it around and saying, families, how can we serve you? And to be honest, that's how I feel we should do our schools from beginning to end anyway. But certainly now there are, and I've said this a hundred times, so people on the podcast, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it again. There are families who need absolutely nothing from the school right now because they can handle it. They can take care of themselves. They, they don't need anything. They're going to continue their lives and it's going to be fine. There are other families who need more than anything for the schools to be open for their kids because they don't have the skills, time, ability, whatever it is to support them. And instead of us saying, what does your family need? And let us serve your specific family. We're instead saying, here's how we're going to do this. And it's it's going to be how we need it done, not how you, the families, need it done. And I think that's really missing a key piece. So how do we 
How do we start changing our whole system? Because it does need to be a system-wide thing. How do we change the system so that we can actually serve our kids? And what's going to happen is that we're going to recognize that the system we already have in place doesn't serve them and we're going to have to change it. So how do we how do we have those conversations and do that in a way that, you know, it's more than just during the pandemic, but it's beyond going into the future? I think this is something that we've been talking about a lot internally. I think Porvi and I talk a lot about the idea of like the cyclical nature of needing to do this, right? I think you alluded to it beginning at the very beginning where it's it's not a check, you reached this place of equity, right? Like check, you're you're now creating these systems. And I think it's and I, so I think we have to mention that it is like a, a constant iterative cycle. And I think when we think about the pandemic, it, like one thing that I was, I think she and I both talked about a few months ago is a sense of false choice, right? And a sense of like, as we're going through the process of redesign, like what are like false choices that we're putting in there to say like, we have free choices. In reality, like, is there even a choice that is at the needs of the most marginalized families, in your case, like the families that actually need more from us in order to like even meet the experience of learning for their students that like were prior to COVID. And, and I think we talked a lot about that. We saw a lot of that with the initial days of reopening, right? When we thought about like, I think the constant three was like, in person, remote, hybrid. And I think we were having a conversation of like, out of these three options, which one is an option for your most marginalized kids? And oftentimes, it's like, none right or like one at best and then those are the moments when you realize that you're providing a false choice where your heart might be at the most best intentions behind making decisions that are actually not recreating a system in a true authentic way uh, like you need a pause and say like okay let's go back to the drawing board and let's take away all choices that are not choices to the marginalized group and let's actually push ourselves to think beyond that and so it's those pausing points and those points of like checking your own intentions with the outcomes of what you're actually creating. Yeah. I think one thing I would just add on is like, it's a tall order changing these systems. And um, in the paper, we do encourage like schools to start with things within their locus of control and hopes that, you know, it'll ripple out from the center. But we also have to like take into account we are designing something that doesn't yet exist. And so we have to like speak to a future that we don't know what, you know, an anti-racist classroom is. We don't know what an anti-racist school system is or an equitable school system because it hasn't been done yet. And so constantly doing those pauses and asking yourself, did I design a system that's actually creating equitable opportunities or am I just perpetuating the same old ideas and systems that have existed um, throughout like for years and years and years? And so that that deep reflection is super key in um, this process. Yeah, and and also you know, it, like like Crystal said before, we we don't know that we can actually get to that point because once we say okay, we're anti-racist, we're going to see areas where we're still struggling in equity issues that may not be about race, but about economics or about students with special needs or whatever. And so you know. I feel like we need to give ourselves permission to be constantly, constantly iterative and be okay with that and recognize that it's not going to be done. Not to mention next year, you're going to have a totally different group of kids. And yes, they may, there may be similarities because of who, who their family is and, and having older siblings there before, but still that's going to change who is there. And I think that 
if you can give yourself patience and understanding that you can do it, but to always be moving forward and seeking to, you know, I really like that idea of let's take out all the choices that don't work for our most marginalized families and then look at what look at what is there. I think that's a really key way to look at it. One of the ideas that I had for reopening schools was taking away the the grade level focus and instead focusing on families. So every teacher would have three or four families that they would work with. And if that's the case, if those three or four families need to meet in person, you could probably get away with that in most states, even if school is not open. But if those three families needed to meet, you could go to their house, they come to your house, you go to the school, you could meet someplace else, you could meet at the library, you could meet at a park. Like all these options are available if you're thinking about what those people actually need and not just thinking about how do we recreate the school that we lost in the spring. But that's a huge change and that would not be easy to implement. However, that would be a perfect solution for any family if you have one teacher who's focusing on just you and a couple other families, you could actually get what you needed. And that might be hybrid. That might be in person. That might be all online. But that one teacher would know with just three or four families to pay attention to who needed what and how to help them. But I think we're already steeped in this idea of what school looks like. And it's really hard to make those changes. Yeah. And I think Jethro, you're, you're saying something too about like your locus, right? Like, like, it's almost like as principals, we don't have the locus of changing how school looks like for district return plan. But as principals, we can hold decisions in how we use time, right? We can hold decisions of like, what are the structures we put in of, of learning? And, and how do we think about siblings? How do we think about, you know, using this time to go cross-curricular and also across grades? I think this is a magnificent time for high schools to think about like how to make credit recovery not one more thing, but embedded in the learning process. So I think it's almost like, like you're so right, right? Like we were talking about this. And the yes and portion is like, what is within your locus that you can change to think about like those most marginalized within your building? Because I, I was sharing a story because I was watching social media of my own friends and I had a friend who's saying, oh no, we have meet the teacher night on Zoom, but I have four kids and all the meeting is at the same time, right? Like that's just like the prime example of like redesigning parenting engagement to meet your families that have multiple kids within the same grade, like within different grade levels at your school. I, I think those are how I'm thinking. Like, yes, that's frustrating. And this is what we can do. Yeah, that's a, a really good example. And, and what my wife and I experienced, because we do have four kids and they're this year would be at three different schools. And, you know, for us to when everybody's making the same plan, that's just not going just not going to work. So in, in closing, the last question that I ask on each episode is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you? And Porvi, we'll start with you and then go to Crystal. I'm going to go with listen deeply, take that time. I know time is very, very precious, but figure out ways that you can listen to your staff, listen to your parents, listen to your students and base your decisions about based on their needs and not what you assume or think their needs might be. 
Um, I am going to start with a quote that sat on my desk for many years when I was in a school. And then that would, that, and the quote is going to help clarify what I mean by that. So the quote that sat on my desk is this concept. It's from Leonard Cohen from Anthem. Um, ring the bells that, that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And so I would say for a transformative leader is identify where there's a crack and see it as a light. So anything that doesn't work this week, awesome. See it as like a place for you to redesign and allow the light to come in. Yeah, those those are both fantastic. Um, thank you both so much for being part of Transformative Principle today. If people want to connect more with you, how would they do that? I mean, I think email is always great or Twitter. Both both work. <laughs> Yeah, our emails are just our first name at Ed yeah. Elements, right? So Crystal yeah. and Porvi at edelements.com. We're both on Twitter. We actually want to engage in more of these conversations. So we actually host coffee chats and you could just sign up to just like talk with us one-on-one because we know that this process is iterative and we can only learn if we're working together. And I really like that you mentioned that sometimes you do need to do one-on-one. And this this was something that I was thinking in the middle of the podcast, but we, we try to do things at scale. And this is one of those things that we kind of need to break down and just do person by person. And it's okay for it to take time. It's okay for it to be slow, but we need to be moving forward. And and so I appreciate you added that in at the end that you can do one-on-one at the end. And you'll, you'll have uh, uh, links to their Twitter profiles and their emails at jethrojones.com slash podcast slash episode 352. And once again, Porvi and Crystal, thank you so much for being part of Transformative Principle today. Thanks, Jethro. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, 
check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.